Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. listening to Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast. If you meant to subscribe to the Black Flower Session by DJ Nimbus, please return to the iTunes store and narrow your podcast search. If you want to hear about DC Comics' Blonde Bombshell, then you're in the right place. I'm Ryan Daly, better known to my cellmates as Count Druncula. Guys and dolls, I am very excited for this episode, in part because I'm not reviewing an issue of Black Canary's solo series from 1993. Really, though, I'm just gaga for the subject of this episode. Today, I'll be reviewing the Black Canary and Green Arrow stories from World's Finest Comics, issue 244. Now, World's Finest began as World's Best Comics in 1941. The book secured its legendary status by putting Superman and Batman, as well as Robin the Boy Wonder, all in the same comic. With issue 2, the series changed title to World's Finest Comics, and for the majority of the series, it teamed the Man of Tomorrow with the Caped Crusader. Issue 244 marked a significant and awesome format change. World's Finest became an 80-page giant with a $1 cover price. The Dollar Comics era lasted 40 issues, each with a main story dedicated to Superman and Batman, as well as three or sometimes four backup features of other DC heroes, including Black Canary, Green Arrow, Wonder Woman, Hawkman, Shazam, Vigilante, The Creeper, Aquaman, Black Lightning, Zatanna, Adam Strange, Red Tornado, The Atom, and Plastic Man. Black Canary got her own feature in 13 of these world's finest issues. After that, she would frequently guest appear in Green Arrow stories, sometimes heroically as the Canary, and sometimes merely as Ollie's love interest. Dinah kicked off the first backup feature in issue 244, which I'll review right after this break. Kalabak, Tassad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Ditchwick, and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick... Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him! He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. World's Finest Comics number 244 is cover dated May of 1977. The actual on-sale date was January 10th of 77, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. 
Neil Adams drew the cover, and Denny O'Neill edited the book. The ten-page Black Canary story titled Rainbows of Doom was written by Jack C. Harris with pencils by Mike Nasser, who later changed his name to Michael Netzer, and inks by the great Terry Austin. Black Canary takes part in the Intercity Track Me at Star Arena. As part of a charity benefit, Dinah displays her Olympic-level agility and acrobatics on the uneven parallel bars for a huge crowd of spectators. Also performing is George Taylor III, the champion pole vaulter. George is going for the world record when his wooden pole suddenly snaps and he starts to fall. Dinah sees that George will land away from the pit, likely killing him. She instinctively races into action and half-catches, half-pushes George onto the pit, saving his life. Dinah realizes that the pole was cut, sabotaged by George's spotter. When she catches up to him, he's clearly terrified, but not of the canary. He's more afraid that the man who hired him to kill George Taylor III will take him out. And that's what happens. Before the spotter can name his employer, he's murdered by an arrow that sets off a burst of rainbow colors. Later, Dinah questions her boyfriend, Oliver Queen, better known as Green Arrow. Ollie's not a suspect, of course, but as the authority on archery and archers, he can give her a list of suspects that could have made the complicated kill shot. It only takes four guesses to point the finger in the direction of the Rainbow Archer. At the same time, the Rainbow Archer meets his mysterious boss to deliver some exposition. The mystery boss, for reasons all his own, tasked Rainbow Archer with killing George Taylor III in order to scare George's father, who owns a newspaper that is endorsing a candidate named Whitney Spencer in an upcoming election. The boss has another candidate in mind, so to finish the job, he sends Rainbow Archer back to the Inner City Games to kill George. Fearing for his son's life, George Taylor threatens to call off the games. Dinah can't convince him otherwise, but George III makes an impassioned speech about basically not giving in to terrorists, citing Israel's response after the massacre at the Munich Olympics a few years earlier. Taylor agrees to let his son compete in the pole vault again, as long as Black Canary is there watching his back. The next day, Dinah attends the games in a different disguise, this time posing as another acrobat, wearing sort of a red leotard covering her torso and arms, as well as red shoes and the traditional blue fishnets. The most curious part of her costume, and by curious I really mean freaking absurd, is that Dinah wears a brown wig over her blonde wig. Think about that. Dinah has long black hair. It's like almost down to her waist. And she pulls that up to put under a blonde wig that runs just past her shoulders. And now she's putting that underneath a brown wig done up in sort of a bun style. It's crazy. When George III makes his attempt at the world record again, the Rainbow Archer strikes. Heavy security measures had been implemented to check the crowd, but for inexplicable reasons, no one in security checked the other athletes. Of course, the Rainbow Archer was in disguise as one of the archery contestants. Dinah spots him too late. The archer fires his arrow at George while in mid-pole vault, but the arrow... misses? The explosion of rainbow light doesn't break George's form, and he passes over the beam, setting the record. Dinah spots the assassin and sheds her costume. Yes, that means taking off one of her two wigs. The Rainbow Archer makes a run for it, but Black Canary picks up George's pole and, like a javelin thrower, hurls it across the stadium. 
The pole slams right into the archer's back with tremendous force. If this pole had been even a little bit pointed at the end, it would impale Rainbow Archer. It has so much force. In the aftermath, the archer is taken away by the cops, but he refuses to name his boss, and that doesn't sit well with Dinah. Ali tries to offer comfort, but since he's a jackass, he pretty much fails at that. And at that moment, though, the canary is attacked. Someone had been watching her talk to Ali. She's struck in the head by an unseen object that knocks her back. She's alive and still conscious, but a little dazed, probably concussed. Ali, of course, screams, no one gets away with hitting my woman, and rips his civilian clothing off to reveal the Green Arrow costume beneath. And that's where the first part of this story ends, the Black Canary chapter. It would be picked up on the very next page with Green Arrow's feature, and I'll come back to that next, but first I want to break down this part. For being only ten pages, Jack Harris makes good use of these pages to tell a simple but fully realized story, while still giving Nasser enough room to stretch his artistic limbs. There are two solid action beats, an interrogation, a villainous reveal, setting up a trap and executing it. There's plenty here, and it's a story that feels appropriate for Black Canary. She's a public figure in Star City, a celebrity crime fighter who functions as the opening act for charity games. But later, she plays the part of private eye and bodyguard. This is her wheelhouse. I love Dinah working with the Justice League, but when it comes to her solo stories, she really shines in the role of private dick. She's not striking from the shadows or analyzing clues with science, like Batman. Black Canary cracks cases by interviewing suspects and tracking down leads. She uses her beauty to entice and disarm her opponents. And when action is called for, she is more than ready. Then there is the main villain of this story, the Rainbow Archer. I tried digging up some biographical and bibliographical information on this guy, but there wasn't a whole lot. In fact, I can't even find out exactly how many comics he has appeared in, because some of his credits might be reprints. All I know is his real name is Albrecht Reigns. He debuted in Adventure Comics issue 246, which was reprinted in Four Star Spectacular number 5, and that he's an enemy of Green Arrow. That might be it. Oh, and in this story, his costume is ridiculous. It's like if Jim Aparo was tasked with redesigning Maxi Zeus as Halo from The Outsider's Big Gay Brother. This story, Rainbows of Doom, might be his second and final appearance. And if that's the case, he definitely belongs in Black Canary's Jailbirds. If he only appeared in two stories and he fought Black Canary in 50% of them, I think he qualifies as a Black Canary rogue. So, Albert Reigns, alias Rainbow Archer, the latest installment of Black Canary's Jailbirds. We'll be right back. Oh, 
Green Arrow picks up the story where Black Canary left off, in a chapter called Slings and Arrows. Nasser and Austin return for art duties, accompanied by Ben Oda, who lettered the story, and Liz Barubi, Barub, who colored it. This chapter, however, was scripted by Tony Isabella instead of Jack Harris. Isabella has a favored place in my heart, having written a lot of great Hawkman stories, and creating Black Lightning, who was DC's first black superhero to headline his own series. The story begins with Green Arrow frantically searching the now-empty arena for the man who attacked Black Canary. Ali's target is watching him from above, and the narrative caption says these foes are more alike than they realize. The villain in question here is called Slingshot, named after his weapon of choice. He doesn't use the Bart Simpson-style slingshot, though, but rather the one David used to slay Goliath. And just as Green Arrow has his trick arrows, Slingshot has different types of... I was going to say balls, but that doesn't sound right. Ammunition? He hurls a stone, or ball, down at Green Arrow that explodes, knocking Ollie back. They fire arrows and stones back and forth in a rapid-fire battle, but Slingshot gets the better of Ollie, because while Ollie's weapon requires two hands, Slingshot's only needs one. But he wields two of them, one in each hand, double the firepower, and that nearly kills Ollie. Slingshot taunts Green Arrow, telling him he's lucky to be alive, and revealing that he attacked Black Canary only because she interfered with his plans. Then he makes a quick exit, but Green Arrow isn't tapped out yet. Ali rushes to the roof, where he witnesses Slingshot get in a car. Driving away from the arena, Slingshot fumes about his failure to ruin Whitney Spencer's campaign, first because Black Canary disrupted his plans, and second because he trusted an idiot like Rainbow Archer. Then, suddenly, Green Arrow drops in the back of the car, having used a couple of parachute arrows to slow his jump from the roof. Arrow and Slingshot fight desperately as the car swerves wildly out of control. As Slingshot seems to be getting the best of Ollie, the car hits a wall, throwing both men onto the sidewalk. Slingshot runs into the nearest building, which just happens to be a courthouse. Ollie follows him, only to discover to his horror that this particular court holds some bad memories for him. This was the courtroom where Oliver Queen lost his fortune back in Justice League of America issue 75. But Slingshot also faces a ghost of the past in this room. This is the court where he was sentenced to life in prison. Lashing out in anger, Slingshot loads his slings with gas bombs meant to kill Green Arrow, but the Emerald Archer fires two arrows that puncture the slings, releasing the deadly gas around Slingshot before he can throw them. The villain falls unconscious, but not dead, spared by his own mask. The cops arrive and take Slingshot into custody, but once out of Ali's sight, the villain gets the drop on the police and escapes. Green Arrow slams his fist into the wall, swearing he will catch Slingshot and stop him. And that wraps up Slings and Arrows. This too is a great story, but it's essentially one big ten-page action scene. The art by Mike Nasser and Terry Austin makes it easy to follow and really exciting. There are shots where the bodies are contorted into all sorts of weird positions in order to throw or dodge their enemies' attacks. It's very exaggerated, it's very stylish, it's very superhuman, despite both men being human. The story, for being a big fight and chase sequence, still feels a little rushed. We don't know why Slingshot was sentenced to prison, or why he's out to destroy the Spencer campaign. We'll just have to trust that he comes back soon, and he does, which is good because, you know, I'm just going to say this now. Slingshot is, by far, my favorite Green Arrow villain I've ever seen. 
I cannot fathom why this guy isn't more popular. His look is great. He basically has a kind of bronzish version of Green Arrow's costume. But where Ali has the dicky beneath his vest, Slingshot has just bare skin, and there's a kind of fishnet or laces pattern on his vest. And as for the mask, he looks like Iron Fist. It's so simple, but so striking. I wish modern-day comic book artists could design costumes like this, but I don't think they can. I just, I don't think this type of aesthetic is in anybody's range right now. There's no costume zeitgeist for this style today. Slingshot also has a beautifully simple weapon. The sling and stone is great. It's primitive and personal, but also ranged, just like a bow and arrow. Perfect. I tell you, my favorite Green Arrow villains are Slingshot and Red Dart, and I think the two of them together have six appearances in all of comics. But, 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 I'm not only calling him a Green Arrow villain. No, Slingshot definitely belongs among Black Canary's jailbirds, because Ali only gets involved after Slingshot attacks Dinah, and Slingshot only targeted Dinah because she was screwing with his evil plans. She might not have known it at the time, and she might not have gotten a chance to fight him, but she made an enemy of Slingshot before Green Arrow. Maybe she didn't fight him this time around, but he attacked her. He wanted revenge on her, and in my book, that makes him enough of an adversary of the Canary. Overall, both of these stories were a great kickoff for what would be the new adventures of Green Arrow and Black Canary in the pages of World's Finest Comics, and I can't wait to review more coming up. And now, Canary Correspondence, where I read your comments and give shoutouts to the people who promoted the show on social media. Got a Twitter retweet this week from Greg Araujo, and Nathaniel Wayne at Council of Geeks tweeted, At Black Canary Fan has a stellar podcast on the DC character Black Canary that you don't have to be a fan of to enjoy. I know, because I ate. Thank you, Greg and Nathaniel. I got a new iTunes review from Gene Hendricks. It's five stars, entitled No Holds Barred. Gene writes, this is a podcast that I never thought I'd listen to. I've always liked Black Canary, but I never read much of her adventures, except as part of the Justice League or Justice Society. Then I started reading the Flowers and Fishnets blog, and realized just how much depth there was to the character. So here I am, listening to a podcast about Black Canary that doesn't shy away from criticizing the bad and reinforcing the good. I'd recommend listening, even if you don't think you're a Black Canary fan. Thanks for that review, Gene. It's great to hear new fans and people who aren't so devoted to the character can still find something valuable, or entertaining at least, about this show. That's why I do it, after all. And you, my listeners, can find Gene over at the Hammer Podcast, which is part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. I got a bunch of new blog page comments from Martin Gray. Martin runs a blog called Too Dangerous for a Girl, where he reviews a whole mess of DC Comics every week. I really like Martin's reviews. And they save me the fuss and bother of actually buying any of those new comics. Regarding episode 6, Martin asked if I thought Sarah Lance might have been named after Sarah Byam, the writer of Canary Solo series. I kind of doubt it because I don't think the showrunners honestly knew that they were going to make Sarah the Black Canary when they wrote the pilot episode, so I doubt that there was much significance or forethought put into the character's name. Also, I don't think anybody but me has put any thought into these Black Canary solo books since they were published, maybe even since before they were published. For episode 7, which was about the retconning of Dinah's origin, Martin said, I remember when these issues came out. Even then, they didn't make a lick of sense. I mean, look at the two pages of explanation printed here. 
Original Dinah's comment, If only she could take my place, reads as if she wants a direct swap. She dies here, and Junior goes back with Superman. But process that through the super dickery brain, and you wind up with a younger Dinah with her mind restarted, but tinged with her mother's memories? It's just sick. And yeah, melded Dinah smiles like Carol Danvers after an immortus shag, and just asks Superman to take her back to Earth rather than having a breakdown. Plus, the story was written to explain why Dinah looked so young, but it gave us the problem of all the JLAers not noticing that the late middle-aged broad with the lovely laugh lines was suddenly a teeny bopper? I suppose they blamed that on Aquarius, too. And to think it was all so avoidable. Give the kid a pacifier already. Yeah, that would have been an elegant solution. Regarding episode 8, Barton speculated that maybe Trevor Von Eden's more voluminous rendering of Dinah might have been inspired by Alex Toth. Um, Toth gave Dinah curves to die for. He didn't draw her like she was retaining all the water in the world. And if Alex Toth were still alive, he would slap you across the face, Martin, for suggesting that. And that brings us up to the latest episode. Chris Franklin of the Supermates podcast said, As a big dog lover, as evidenced by our new puppy drinking water in the background of episode 7, I've always had a soft spot for crypto. I'm now interested to see how the story arc resolves in the Superman titles. DC can poo-poo the Super Pets all they want. The idea of a Superman or Superboy and his dog is just too great to let go. Totally agreed, Chris. Where's the all-ages book starring Crypto, Streaky the Supercat, Rex the Bathound, Topo, Aquaman's pet squid, the seahorse, the, um, the superhorse? Maybe Taki Tani can be their manager. A uh, new listener but friend of the show, Nathaniel Wayne, said, Not sure I have much to say on this episode, as it's such a simple story, but I'll take the opportunity to say that I've just binged the episodes of this podcast over the past few days, and you're doing a stellar work. I can't say that I'm a Black Canary fan. In fact, I don't think I've ever read a single story she's been featured in, or even seen any of the episodes of various TV shows the character was used in. But that hasn't stopped my enjoyment of this. Your enthusiasm for the character is infectious, but at the same time, it's not a blind enthusiasm that glosses over issues with the character's history or usage, even in what would not be considered classic appearances. It reminds me of how I got hooked into the TV show Top Gear, even though I'm not now, nor have I ever been, into Cars. The enthusiasm that the hosts have for the topic rubbed off and made me enjoy the show, and I'm finding the same with this. Dude, I love Top Gear, and I don't know jack about Cars. I'm right there with you. I'm only sorry that they fired my favorite one of the three hosts, because, I don't know, I think I read something where he, like, bit the face off one of the other guys. Maybe I got that wrong. Uh, anyway, Nathaniel continues... I suppose the one other thing I'll note is that I keep hearing references from yourself and in the comments about how unnecessary Crisis was, and how the multiverse wasn't hard to follow. Speaking as someone with a working knowledge of comics, but who has never been a voracious reader of them, the multiverse was confusing as hell for very little clear benefit. I got, and still do get, the appeal of random Elseworlds stories, but maintained alternate universe continuities, particularly when they were created not by design, but because it was just the only way to try and reconcile decades of blatantly ignoring continuity, is just a ton of work for writers and readers for minimal return. I suspect that for longtime fans of DC, you've just lived with it for too long to see how it could be confusing. A bit like how after you learn how a magic trick works, it boggles your mind how nobody else can figure out how it's done because it's so obvious to you now. Anyways, keep up the great work. Um, 
agree to disagree, I guess. I mean, I see your point, Nathaniel. It is valid, and it was the prevailing belief at the time. That's why DC made the changes they did. So maybe it's a matter of perspective and personal preference. I don't know. Nathaniel is the creator of Council of Geeks, a series of web shorts and reviews that you can find on YouTube. Every once in a while, I appear as one of his guests. Diablo Frank of the Marvel Superheroes podcast, the Underguides podcast, the Idol Head of Diablo podcast, and about 17 different blogs wrote, Mr. Fixit usually has a dog or two in the house. I'm more of a cat person, which should surprise no one. Illegal Machine is the big dog lover, though, as in his pampered Great Danes. Hmm. Nope, no surprise there. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary wrote, Love the story and the reintroduction of Crypto. We used to foster dogs in the house, taking in dogs from the south until they found their forever home. We did this for several years, but it became harder and harder for the Supergirls at home to love these dogs for months, only to have them taken away. We finally decided to have a dog of our own, our beloved Lucy, so I understand all your feelings. Dude, the fact that Ange used to foster dogs while they transitioned is amazing. I have even more respect for him now, and he's a freaking doctor. Returning to Martin Gray for this episode, he wrote, Ah, I remember reading this story as a kid. I loved it. And when Superman and Crypto were later reunited, it was just adorable. To Nathaniel's point on the multiverse, Martin said, Hmm, I can't see that parallel worlds were confusing either, and they were there when I was a nipper. It seemed pretty clear. Multiple worlds, and you knew which one you were dealing with because the story tells you. Maybe you need a peculiar mindset. I don't know if it's so much a mindset as a personal preference and a willingness to meet the story perhaps more than halfway, to understand and appreciate the various continuities and universes. Well, actually, maybe that is a mindset. Anywho, that's all for this episode. Next time, I'll be back with a review of the next issue of World's Finest, as well as a very important message from Jerry Conway. If you enjoyed the show, you can leave a comment on the blogger page, blackcanaryfan.blogspot.com. There you can contact me with any questions or comments. You can also find me on Facebook and on Twitter using the handle at blackcanaryfan or at ryandaily01. Or you can search the username Count Druncula. Flowers and Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the reviews expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And I make no money off this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.